Yesterday, got the word about our reopening framework for our kids' schools. This particular document is 30 pages long. I'd like to call your attention to page 29, which is part of the FAQ at the end. And the question is, does my child have to wear a cloth or disposable face covering in the classroom? And the answer is yes. A cloth or disposable face covering must be worn by all students, staff, visitors while on school property, except for the following. When an individual cannot safely wear a cloth or disposable face covering. Second, while eating or drinking. Third, while indoors and maintaining a, so a social distancing at the definition of the school district and staff. And finally, while outdoors. When do we have to wear it again? Because this sounds like a lot of times we're not wearing it. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to episode number 180. On the dial of Touchpoint, I'm Reed Smith. That is Chris Boyer. Hey, Reed, how you doing? 180. That's a significant number. It is. It is. So today we'll be talking solely about billboards. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're taking a new turn in our podcast. We're just going to be talking about traditional marketing from here on out. From episodes 180 to 359, we will only talk about traditional advertising. <laughs> and then when we hit 360, we'll be back to digital. Tell some friends on the brand side of the department, and uh, we'll see you guys again in about three years. <laughs> no, not really. But we bag on billboards. We should do an episode on billboards sometime soon. And because uh, I'm not saying they're not bad, and uh, maybe we should do something around that. So, anyway, that's neither here nor there, nor what we're going to talk about today. Before we do, though, however, do want to plug a couple of things. Touchpoint Health is the website. The TPS report, which is the weekly email, comes out every Monday morning. You can sign up for said email on said website. Check out the website. Uh, of course, this show is there, all the show notes, all that kind of fun stuff, as well as all the other shows on the network, whether it's the exam room, data point, intersection. We've just restarted Bobby Ratu and I, Gear and Review, been focusing on, on healthcare and kind of the impact of the gear we use based on the time we've just been going through. So you can go check out those last couple episodes. We actually talked about rule of thirds on the most recent one that just came out. Go check all those out. Touchpoint.health against the website. We're going to take a brief pause right here and we'll be right back. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And read, consider this, 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, 
and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. Today, Reed, we're going to be talking about uh, the idea of putting customer first as a mantra across our industry. You and I have touched on this topic a, n- a number of times. Uh, we're starting to see that because of the pandemic, there's a more active conversation around what does it mean to be customer centric? To level set or kind of frame this a little bit, kind of as you hear us talk, when we say consumer or customer or, or whatever, who are we really talking about? So uh, patients, both current and former and potentially you know, patients. I think that's pretty much the whole population at that point. But maybe it's the people that care for those patients. And that could be a spouse, that could be a son, uh, a daughter, uh, could be a parent. It could also be uh, people that take care of those patients, i.e. our clinical folks, doctors, nurses, therapists, dietitians, etc. It could be the people that support those people. (laughs) Right. So it could be different departments within the hospital, like materials or dietary or whatever it is. It could be our board members, could be our volunteers. I mean, so again, like literally if it's if it's people, that's probably who we're talking about, you know, that come in and interact with our healthcare system and draw value out. So pretty much everybody, if you think about it, right? All of them. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Whatever the census is. It's that many people, those people. Which is one of the reasons why it's so hard to kind of pinpoint customer centricity as a concept. That's really hard. Some organizations saying putting customer first means they're going to be providing 24-7 support, providing you know all these various different ways where people can interact with them at all different times. Other people say it's supporting your customer goals above everything else. And, and I've often said that from a digital perspective as putting your customers at the center of your strategies. Reed, from your perspective, what do you think it means to be customer-centric? It's the focal point. And we've talked about this, and it really goes back to our episode we did on empathy, in my mind. So are we empathetic to the viewpoint, the concern, the struggle, the need, whatever, you know, however you want to frame that of said consumer. The physician that is struggling with some new EHR implementation because of the way it's hard to access via the, you know, right? So are you empathetic to that scenario and are you working from their viewpoint outward? Now you do have to balance that to some degree of the overall need of the group. You know, you can't get so granular that it's just Dr. Smith versus Dr. Jones and they want two different things. And then too, you know, this this goes back a little bit to that Henry Ford quote that's not a Henry Ford quote or something. I, I don't remember. If I would have asked people what they wanted, they'd have said needed, they would have said, you know, a faster horse. Sometimes consumers don't know what they need, but that doesn't mean that you're still not being consumer-centric when you're developing that solution. It's really hard to pinpoint specifics. We don't have a Wikipedia article that we can refer to that really can pinpoint exactly, you know, these are the five things that mean consumer centricity. But we also know it's evolving too, because, you know, our customers 
all of those people that we mentioned before, they're also changing the way they're thinking and interacting with our organization. So let's dive in a little bit to talk about customer centricity, customer first mentality. And maybe the first article we can kind of dive into a little bit is from a a website called customerthink.com. I think that's a great URL, by the way, to have customerthink.com. I wonder how long they've had that. And that seems like that would have been one that got snatched up a while back. There's an article there called How Customer Experience is Changing the Healthcare Industry. Cool article. And uh, one of the first things that they uh, reference is a research by Salesforce. And that research showed that no less than 47%, so let's just round that up, that half of consumers say that healthcare, and they also say life sciences, are more focused on industry needs versus patient needs. No surprise. Whenever we have these stats that say that, I, I'm surprised that it's actually that few of people, honestly, having worked in healthcare. There's another study they reference here from PricewaterhouseCoopers that says only 49% of consumers say that healthcare customer experience is satisfactory. Those two play hand in hand, right? And the other half are lying. Yeah. (laughs) I would have thought that number to be higher, quite honestly. And I'd be curious when they say healthcare customer experience, what does that mean exactly? We have, and I'll throw another stat in here, talking about the digital adoption over the last few months with everything that we've been doing. We've talked about the acceleration into telehealth and telemedicine type services. Dr. V, uh, one of our other show hosts, wrote a really good article about telehealth and a telehealth adoption and the Gartner hype cycle and headed into the trough of digital illusionment and all that kind of stuff over on his site at 33 Charts. It's worth checking out. But one thing I, I did read, uh, and it was a McKinsey study, If anybody's curious, I'm happy to send them a link. But they talk about digital adoption by consumers. Now, this is not in healthcare, just digital adoption in general by consumers has accelerated or vaulted ahead what they're estimating to be five years into the future in the course of eight weeks. And the idea there is that that's really far, really fast, and we're not ready for it. And so I think you couple that with these other stats that we just mentioned which is we're predominantly focused on our needs versus the patient's needs. And most of those, at least half of those consumers say that their experience has been unsatisfactory. Bad news, now it's digital and digital all the time. And so we really haven't been considering that level of experience. But good news is uh, we've got a real opportunity. There's always a good silver lining in this, right? Is that all of these problems are opportunities for us to to solve. This article actually talks about three things that they say uh, will help the customer experience change in healthcare. And let me list them out for you, Reed, and I want your reaction to them because they sound pretty simple when I talk about them, but they're probably not. The first is erasing that friction, the friction that the customer has when interacting with your brand. Sounds easy, right? It sounds like a great idea. And I know from experience, it's not terribly easy, but no, it makes sense, right? So when people are trying to do things and interact with you, how is it not hard? The second is converging platforms and ecosystems so that we have a better understanding of the the customer anytime they're interacting with our brand. Oh man, interoperability, that is super simple. Uh, This stuff is all made to work together. Uh, these vendors work together all the time. And the third one is hyper-personalize your communication so it's relevant to your customer. Uh, super. This is great. <laughs> yeah. That's like literally the three things that are hardest to do. Like there could not be three things 
in marketing communications that are harder to do, which is remove all the friction, make everything work together and make it super personalized (laughs) to to everybody, no matter who they are. The good news is the author of the article realizes that these are not easy things to overcome. And he actually puts forward some ideas around how organizations that are thinking about going down this path, where they could start down this path. And he talks about in other industries, not healthcare, that there are people that their informal roles are called friction hunters. They go and they find and tackle customer frictions. I want that job. Yeah, I'm the uh, senior director of uh, friction hunting. We can make a good TLC show called Friction Hunters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if we could just just find like two twins to host the show that one of them's really good at like fixing what you have and then one of them finds a better solution and then you pick between the two scenarios to have people specifically looking for and then ultimately tackling those pieces or areas of the organization that just make it difficult, right? And so a lot of things are bill pay or, you know, it's these different, it's these activities a lot of times is where some of the friction comes in, especially with healthcare in the digital space. And notice it is too, it's not saying that they're going out and they're trying to solve all of the customer problems at once. It's this whole concept of not trying to boil the ocean. You have to solve problems one by one. It could be appointment check-ins. It could be wait times. It could be test results. Don't try to tackle them all at once. The rest of the article kind of outlines areas where he has seen healthcare organizations trying to address and give some good examples. So let's dig into a little bit of these here. Uh, The first, he says, is the biggest friction point in healthcare right now is pricing, the cost of care. I would agree with that, wouldn't you? Well, yeah, because I mean, like, what is it? I don't know what the cost is. Here are some examples that he listed. Uh, Walmart, for example. We've heard a lot in the news lately about their care clinics and even the larger Walmart health center that they've that they're developing, they're trying to develop a an experience that is not only easier and has more access in the various communities, but the services that they're providing through these experiences are much cheaper. Yeah, the entry point is already there. He also mentions uh, under the same point, Harvard Medical School Hospital uh, helps diagnose and treat patients more quickly with a chat bot that listens to the patient's uh, symptoms and health concerns, then guides the patient to the correct cure based on his diagnosis. This is a chat bot that actually is doing clinical diagnosis. That's pretty cool. The last uh, example he brings up is with Johns Hopkins uh, Hospital, which good friend of our show here. They have a partnership with GE to use predictive AI techniques that improves the efficiency of patient operational flow. Maybe it doesn't outwardly uh, impact the the wallet of the the customer or the patient in this case, but it has resulted in a 60% improvement in the ability to admit patients and a 21% increase in patient discharges before noon, which ultimately results in a faster, more efficient experience. And long-term, that results in more affordable care solutions. Those are really great examples of how organizations are trying to tackle pricing. Another factor, they say, unrelated to reducing friction for the patient and, and the cost of providing employee experience as well. This industry where a lot, they talk about healthcare is an industry where a lot of workers are overstressed, overworked, and underpaid. And you could argue the underpaid part, maybe, depending on the role. So I, I don't want to get into all that. But employee experience, as it impacts ultimately the consumer experience. 
Well, and I know that having worked in health systems that it's very important these employees of yours, it could be nurses, frontline staff, whoever it might be, if they're not happy, it's going to be very hard to develop customer experience uh, solutions that are actually going to improve or delight your customers, so to speak. So it's it, it's an interesting angle to think about is that you have to think about your own employees and making sure that they have all the tools and resources they need so that you know they show up in a in a very good positive way. I think that's that's an interesting perspective to have. The other thing that he addresses and these are some cool examples here that we'll get into. The best way he says to offer a fantastic customer experience is by the hyper personalization. It's really getting to know that patient so well that they no longer need to become sick. We'll share some examples here. So the first one is in Australia. There's a company called DNA Fit that offers a genome personalized workout and nutrition advice, including diet plans, grocery lists, and a workout app that's connected to the patient's health record. So it's personalized for them, and it creates routines based on their genetics and their care so that you can actually start to lead a healthier life. Obviously, not everybody in Australia is using it. It's in a small pilot program, but what an interesting idea to introduce a solution like that. I mean, anything that, uh, again hyper-personalized, what's the likelihood that that then becomes a habit, right? Like it's easier to do, makes a better impact or quicker impact or both. Um, Really interesting. Another one they mentioned here, iCarbonX. It's a company that wants to build a consumer-facing AI platform as a one-stop shop, they say, for all things health and wellness, forming a digital health alliance with startups across the globe. So I guess it'd be kind of like an interface that aggregates a bunch of stuff on the back end. So uh, for example, from skincare and nutrition recommendations to behavioral health and genetic analysis, uh, and even health and life insurance. So it's kind of like they liken it to like an Amazon approach. So the platform um, is not one singular product, but you know it's um, an ecosystem or a store, if you will, or a, a distribution site of, of healthcare services. And everybody kind of plugs into the back end, I guess, much like Amazon. Such a cool idea to do that. It's interesting that they say that they want to build this because it doesn't exist right now. Back to our aforementioned concerns about these er- these things. These are very complex solutions that are taking a long time to get off the ground and there's not widespread adoption. It's not like how many people are using Amazon today are also using these tools. This just underscores the fact that being customer centric in an organization is very difficult to do. While these are inspiring and we should look at these as examples of where we want to go, after the break, we'll come back and we'll talk about some ways that are actually a little bit more attainable, a little bit more realistic, where we as healthcare organizations can start becoming customer first. And let's do that right after this brief pause. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. All right, so now let's uh, transition just a little bit and talk about one of the most important customer touch points, the contact center. The call center. It's where you get your eyeglasses. You know, it's kind of like Hubble or one of those where you... <laughs> <laughs> The call center. There's an article from Forbes that says the road to customer centricity starts closer to home. It really is talking about the call center and how the call center is probably one of the, the highest touch points in any organization, be it if it's through the phone or if it's through like a chat bot functionality or whatever it might be, this is the place where customers interact with you the most. And in healthcare, we know that from uh, working with the various different call centers, they get tons of calls and their jobs are very complex. You got to be Wikipedia, right? Like you got to be able to answer and address uh, anything kind of in real time, it seems, whether that's real people answering the phone or chat bots or some combination of the two. So there's a company called GCS. They're a customer service consulting group, and they did a survey that we'll link to in the show notes. Let's just pull out a couple of stats here from the survey that would be important. 39% of the people surveyed, and this was just recently, like in June, they said that the opportunity to speak to a human agent is a make or break factor in a customer service interaction with a company. I find myself just pressing zero repeatedly until finally it gives up and like patches you through kind of a deal. And as a side note, uh, if you've never seen the Trip and Tyler video, they're the ones that did the conference call in real life. They did uh, the customer service call in real life and it is spectacular. Another uh, stat here, 17% were disappointed in the inability of a chatbot resolving their issue. You know, honestly, at 17%, that's not, that's not bad. If a chatbot is, it truly, if it's the inverse, right, and it's, you know, 83% of the time, chatbots are resolving the issue, that's, that's pretty good. Here's another stat, again, below the average, but it says that 37.5% of U.S. respondents stress the need to have a friendly customer service person. I don't think that's a big surprise, but it again reinforces the fact that the contact center, the call center, are perhaps your biggest brand advocates, and they could be your biggest touch point to working within a customer-first approach. They go on to say that the average annual turnover rate for contact center agents, though, is more than double the average of all other occupations in the United States. The average turnover rate... For the agents is more than double. Yeah, okay. And that's taken into account all types of call centers. This is not healthcare specific. Yeah. The last thing they kind of point out here, the best way to help call uh, to help call organizations understand the challenges of maintaining a strong contact call center, uh, they, they, they point out just a couple of things. One is being analytics driven, which again is not a huge jump or leap. They talk a little bit about AI-powered analytics and they give a you know, better picture into what's going on. Insight-fueled cross-department alignment is another one. Being on the same page as it relates to customer centricity, so making sure that everybody involved is kind of singing from the same hymnal and then having uh, flexibility and self-management. So again, during all the kind of stay-at-home orders and, and whatnot, these agents are still doing the same job, but they can't just like lean over and be like, hey, man, what, what are we doing here? You know, and so making sure that, you know, they're supported, valued, 
I think that what you're describing, these are elements, too, of a good customer experience platform, if you think about it, right? And we've heard this as customer experience platforms. And I've worked in some organizations where they're really building out these robust platforms for call centers. So they can get that AI-powered analytics. Instead of like being the Wikipedia and opening up all these binders, they're now able to get information very readily at their fingertips. They will even be able to pull up information based on the person calling in, who that person is, and their previous interactions with the organization organization. I think that that's important. Uh, The second part you mentioned about cross-departmental alignment, we're all striving to break down those silos. But the flexibility and self-management, now that we're all kind of in a work-from-home world, I would hope that becomes more and more the, the standard, not the exception to the rule. That will allow you to suddenly have call center agents that might be there longer than eight to five, which in most health systems, that's all they're, they're manning the phones for. Imagine having people available at nights and on weekends, you know? Well, I know some of the, and again, not healthcare specific, but you look at some of these big companies like Dell and some others, they're not going to bring people back. Now this is what it is. It is a real opportunity. So we caught up with trying to get back to what we deem normal or are we using this as an opportunity to kind of reevaluate the best way to be customer centric? One last thing before we go to to our interview, let's talk about the role that digital and digital transformation efforts have in driving us forward. No surprise, this is a halo effect that can kind of wrap around all these efforts that you're doing. So the last article, which I found to be really interesting when I read it, it's from CMS Wire, and it's called Five Best Practices to Shepherd Your Organization Through Digital Transformation. First, they talk about digital transformation being driven by a perceived need to adopt new technology. And and typically that comes from trying to be more competitive or the desire to be more competitive. The other two kind of drivers around digital transformation, a desire to fundamentally realign your policy or your culture. You could have a new leader that comes in that has this desire to get the company back on track or maybe realize that we're not being customer first or that they recognize it's time to maybe update, modernize, or even align departments within the organization to be more customer centric. And so that drives some digital transformation efforts. But the third one is new, Reed, isn't it? It is. The unexpected events. So they obviously reference coronavirus or COVID-19, but what we've seen, what I mentioned earlier from that McKinsey study, the rapid adoption of digital tools for consumers, telemedicine, chatbots, et cetera, and then also on the employee side or employment side, the transition to kind of the work from home world or the distributed workforce. Those are events that actually lead us to really seriously consider digital transformation. And I know that every organization out there is thinking about it in either a small or a big way. So how? How to go about doing it? Now, here are the five best practices that he recommended. First is a common vision. You need to develop sort of that true north of what you're trying to do. If you don't have that, and you can just come up and say, okay, we're going down the path of digital transformation. We're not really sure what we're going to be doing, but we are going to go down this path it falls apart right away. You need to have that common vision. How are we going to get there? And you need to communicate that throughout the organization so everybody that you're involved with, because it's multi-departmental, will know. Transparency is the second one. The only way you're going to get a large number of people working together is if you have this vision and then you provide transparency into who is doing it and how they're going to be doing it. This is 
sometimes a deal breaker in many organizations, particular organizations where they don't embrace transparency so much. You have to say, look, these people are going to go out here. They're going to be doing these things. You're going to be getting calls from them. They're going to be auditing your meetings. They're going to be actually asking questions of you. And this is why they're doing it. And it really is designed to kind of break down those silos. It kind of actually bleeds into the next one a little bit, the respecting individuality. So safe places to innovate, question, come up with new ideas, et cetera. That's a culture play. What do you do when there's a difference of opinion and how team members react to that, how you react to that, how you foster that is going to really make it a place where, you know, are we going to come up with new cool ideas or is it going to be, you know, kind of the same old, same old? You can't defer back to the hierarchical way that, you know, our healthcare systems have been built. Everybody's on the same level playing field in order to solve this problem. And we referred to that in the interview from last week in our last week's podcast. The fourth ingredient is responsibility to enable team members who are working on customer first issues and digital transformation issues to raise any issues where they see a gap in a clearly defined or regularly scheduled process. You need to treat people, instead of just treating them as employees, you need to see them as stakeholders and therefore each individual owns a part of the success of this digital transformation effort. This is all about changing the culture, and this is sometimes where where many of digital transformation efforts fall apart, which leads to the fifth one, Reed, which is? Tools. <laughs> Everybody loves tools. No, aligning tools. So find tools that support the first four best practices. So again, the, the, people have asked, as a matter of fact, I got a question this week, you know, what social media management system should we use? And, and usually my answer is the one you'll use. I don't know that it's much different here, but you want to do make sure that it supports what you're trying to do because there's not one, there's no silver bullet. Nothing's going to magically fix any organizational or cultural problems. Like that's not how this works. But if you take these first four things seriously, you'll be able to come up with kind of that specification or spec document that really is going to allow you to find the tools that'll work the best. I like that, Reed. I'm going to steal that from you. Uh, what tools should I use? The ones that you'll use. This is probably a good point in in the podcast where we'll take a break. And after we come back, we'll hear from Grad Khan, who's the chief marketing officer over at Sprinkler.com. He and I recently had a chance to sit down and he was able to share thoughts around using a customer experience platform and what that means to build a customer-centric organization. All right, welcome back to the Ask the Experts section of the podcast. And today I am talking with someone that I, I don't think we've actually ever met in person, Grad, but I feel through the phone conversations we had, I've gotten to know you pretty well. And that's Grad Khan. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Really excited to be here today. For those people that are listening in that may not know a little bit about you, do you mind sharing a brief background about yourself? Uh, yeah, you know, I started my career as a packaged goods marketer, worked at Procter & Gamble, selling mostly detergent, and then um, moved into tech and ended up doing about a dozen years in startups. And then from there, I uh, ended up at Microsoft and actually ended up at Microsoft Research. And at Microsoft Research, I was actually hired in to build something called Microsoft Health Vault. And so it was the first online PHR. Mayo Clinic was one of our first white label partners, worked really closely with New York Presbyterian Hospital in New York, worked really closely with Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, and, uh, and many, many other hospitals and health institutions around the world. Uh, did that for a whole bunch of years, and then uh, was uh, asked to be CMO for Microsoft US, 
because there are, believe it or not, some interesting similarities between what they were trying to do in MarTech and what we had been doing in health tech. And I was a CMO for Microsoft US for about seven years. While I was there, met a company called Sprinkler. I became their first customer. And a couple of years ago, made a personal decision to move to New York. And uh, along the way, Sprinkler said, uh, would you be our CMO? So I've been CMO, actually my title's Chief Experience and Marketing Officer, so CXMO here at Sprinkler since uh, for a little bit more than two years now. So Sprinkler, I'm familiar with it. I actually have in my previous positions have used your platform before as a social media management tool. But there's a little bit more to what Sprinkler actually does. We're widely misperceived to be a social media management tool, and we do do that. Sprinkler is actually a customer experience management platform. We connect to all of the modern channels. So think of everything that's been invented in the 21st century as a modern channel. So things like chat, uh, all the social platforms, all the messaging platforms like you know WeChat and WhatsApp, all the blogs, and there's millions of them, forums like Reddit, and review sites, which have obviously become a core way that people buy. That sort of modern channel universe is one of unstructured and unsolicited information and data that needs a very different type of approach than what you would classically see in traditional channels where structured data can flow into a CRM system. Most analysts are talking about how CRM is still you know, very super legitimate and very important place for CRM as sort of a relational database with structured data and transactional data. But layered on top of that will be a CXM system, which will be managing the experience across all the comments that people are making. The second thing we do really well is we, we use AI to allow people to manage all those comments at scale and then respond to them. And you've got to be able to roll back in to manage and be able to help people with their problems or amplify their fandom or respond to their concerns. And if you're not actually talking to people, you're really not managing the experience correctly. And they want to see that managed in real time. Uh, Mark Pritchard, who's the CMO at Procter & Gamble, talks about the era that we're entering as the era of mass one-on-one, which is really have one-on-one relationships with all their customers, which is what they expect, but be able to do it in a mass way. So there's a lot of tooling and AI and other things required to be able to scale. In this particular day and age, when hospitals and health systems are kind of dealing with understanding what our audience feel, and there's a sort of a heightened sensitivity around it because we're dealing with this public health crisis, it becomes such an important thing for for organizations to really understand how their their customers are experiencing their brand and their organization through the work that you do. Organizations are really starting to leverage this platform to gain some good insights. The WHO coronavirus dashboard is actually powered by Sprinkler. Uh, There's also a messenger bot. And that's a really good example of mass one-on-one. WHO messenger bot, what it's doing is that it's there to answer questions. It's not surprising, and I'm sure you're aware of this, is there's a fair amount of misinformation going on around coronavirus. This messenger bot is a way of sort of solving that. And it does it in a way where Millions of people can ask it questions and it can give personalized responses using AI in a way that people feel like they're being addressed in a one-on-one way, but it's being done at massive mass scale. We've also got Washington State using the social information, mostly self-reported symptoms, to be able to predict outbreaks and where outbreaks will occur using the location services functionality of Sprinkler. There's a cynicism about broadcast communications. People are generally cynical about being told what to think. 
people prefer to draw their own conclusions. There's been this power struggle between is social media used to develop that experience or is it now a channel to be used for marketing? There's a big drive here now on social around advertising and and using that to kind of drive action, so to speak. But how do you balance that in your mind? Advertising is important in the social platform environments because it is the way that you reach your audience. You know, organic reach is not really a thing anymore, with one exception, which I'll, I'll tell you about in a second. The way that you do advertising, though, is quite different. Again, broadcast versus conversation, right? That's the contrast. And I would say that the conflict in marketing today is that marketing is still mostly populated by broadcast marketers who attempt to take broadcast techniques to what is essentially a conversational medium. There are not a lot of conversational marketers yet. And even that expression, although it's been around for a few years, I think it was coined about four years ago, conversational marketing is still pretty early stage. In a, in a context of broadcast, I have a message and I deliver it, right? So you often see people taking programmatic display ads and just pushing them into their social channels. Yep. It doesn't work. And then they'll say something like, ah, social doesn't work for us. You have some others who are like, hey, you know what? The great thing about advertising and social platforms is I can get someone's demographics. I can get their interests. I can know a lot about them. And if I'm smart about it, I can tailor my message and I can personalize it in a way that they'll care about it more. Actually, something like, I think the number 71% of consumers now expect and prefer personalized ads, ads that recognize my unique needs and interests. So we have one customer who produced, in the course of um, about 100 days, they ran a campaign with 8 million different variations, psychographic, demographic, and geographic variations, 8 million. It's an extremely successful campaign. It's because they were using the medium the way it was meant to be used. But if you were to say to a traditional broadcast marketer, you're going to do 8 million different versions of that ad, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. what are you talking about? Right. Right. And you need a tool like to be able to do that too. Like you can't just, that doesn't just roll off the spreadsheet. You've got to actually have the right tooling for it. But, but that is what it means. And the second thing though, is that when you run those 8 million ads, you're going to get comments on the ads and a lot of marketers miss this. And what will happen is you'll have comments on the ads. We actually had one customer, they were a, a major studio and they had a DVD release. They were advertising the DVD in the comments the social comments in the ad, one of the very first posters said, hey, you don't have to buy this movie. You can get it for free on this BitTorrent site. <laughs> the ad team wasn't reading the social comments because they weren't the social, the quotation marks social team. The social team wasn't reading it because they weren't quotation marks the ad team. So essentially, the ad team spent millions of dollars pushing out an ad telling everybody how to get their movie for free. <laughs> and this is where like, our argument to people is you have to think, you cannot think about these as separate teams. You have to think about this as how I'm talking to my customer. And, and when you're doing advertising on social platforms, be aware of the fact that your advertising is being commented on, shared. And we have another very successful campaign where the advertisers saw that the comments on their ads were very specific. Like the language was very specific a very heavy use of emojis that they had not sort of been familiar with. And they could see the vernacular that their customers were using to talk about their product. Uh, So they began using that vernacular in their headlines, 10x their ad response rate. So successful, in fact, 
that their offline ads, like what they put on billboards and buses and stuff, now actually use the same language, vernacular, and emojis that came from those original comments in the social ads. This idea of listening to your customer and then talking to them in their own voice, very powerful. Doesn't sound crazy, right? And it's also a very good example of stimulus response. If I talk to you in your language or in your accent or in your, you know, your vernacular, you will respond to me differently than if I talk to you in a very different way. So advertising on social is critical. Now, there is, there is something that people are also missing, which is while organic is essentially a non-starter as a channel, less than half a percent of your followers will even be shown any of your posts, let alone see it. There is something you can do with highly personalized creative, where you respond to a post with custom creative that it actually references the person, puts their handle in the ad, and has you know, images from their own feed. What happens is when you do that and you're highly personalized and targeted in your response, the person is so blown away by that. It's still fairly unique. I mean, we're still years away from people getting used to being responded to and being listened to that they will always retweet it or always share it or whatever the platform is. Those shares drive organic expansion and uh, are kind of an organic amplification of the content. And so you can get pretty, you can get pretty far. There's always been this constant, like I almost call them two sides of the same coin, right? The marketing is, has a certain purpose in mind. Communications has a certain purpose in mind, but yet the two combined together really can develop a truly personalized experience if you understand and listen to your customers the most, because the third piece of that, it's not really two sides of a coin. There's three sides. It's not a coin now. I don't know what I'm describing here. Maybe a pyramid, <laughs> right? Three sides of the pyramid, the customer feedback, right? And I think that those three elements to Together really comprise what an experience effort would be. Yet many organizations kind of have challenges doing those three things in a balanced way, so to speak. Some organizations uh, that I'm familiar with, right, are really good at marketing or they're really good at communications. Not many of them are really good at understanding the customer voice. Today, more than uh, 60 billion messages will be sent on messaging platforms. More than 40 billion messages will be sent on social platforms. On the messaging platforms of those 60 billion, 9 billion are directed at businesses a day. And on the social platforms, it's about 6 billion directed to businesses a day. Your customer's talking to you all the time. You're organized by department. And I'm going to guarantee you that your care department, which is probably one of the most important incoming customer channels you have, has nothing to do with your marketing department. So basically, care is trying to get customers off the phone as fast as they can, and marketing is trying to get customers to call them. Usually the same people. So you've created a siloed organization where people don't talk to each other, they've got competing objectives, and at the end of the day, the customer's getting forgotten in the mix. And I think it's one of the things that, that, to, that I think is most you know sort of fun slash interesting about all the stuff that's going on right now is that even what... What it means to be a customer is somewhat, you need to work on that, right? For example, in healthcare, there's no such thing as a patient. Like, I know we serve patients, and we, but that is not the way healthcare is delivered. You see the patient, you treat the patient. But the patient rarely arrives at the care institution on their own, and they rarely depart on their own, and they almost never recover on their own. The patient is surrounded by a family. In most cases, that family is led by a chief medical officer or, you know, you know family health care provider or whatever the words are that you want to. 
kind of come around it, but there's somebody who's in that family who's managing the care of that family. And so where a lot of health systems make a mistake is they get this like natural provider patient centric view of the world because that's their delivery mechanism. And the, the Copernican shift, and this is one of my sort of Copernicus was my, one of my all time, like favorite heroes. What Copernicus did is Copernicus did not invent anything, although he's generally credited with kicking off the scientific revolution. He was asked to create a, a better system for predicting the seasons. And so they had this Earth-centric view of the universe, heliocentric view of the universe, Ptolemaic-centric view of the universe, where the Earth is the center and everything rotated around the Earth. And it's not a crazy view of the universe. Like if you stand in a field for a few days, the sun comes up in the east and you know goes down in the west. And the next day it comes back up in the east again. It goes down in the west again. Like it kind of seems like the earth, the sun is going around the earth. The earth feels pretty flat. Just observationally, it's not insane to think that the earth's the center of the universe and everything's rotating around it. The stars move in the sky around the earth, right? That was the view of the universe. And then what Copernicus did is he said, you know, what if we were moving around the sun? How would like all these sort of calculations of seasons work? And of course, once you do it that way, everything snaps in place, worked out perfectly. Now he was smart enough because it was heresy. He was smart enough to release it on his deathbed. It was a brilliant, one of my, one of my favorite drop the mic moments like ever, right? <laughs> like the best hour. <laughs> it took like 60 years to kind of spread. But, but what Copernicus did is he didn't actually invent anything. What he did is he said, Maybe our perception of the universe is different from the reality of the universe. And the problem in most organizations is that the perception of the organization, which is I'm providing care to a patient, is different from the reality, which is I'm interacting with a family care system. And so as you think about, you know, I, we talk about kind of customer centric, I'd say in healthcare, it's family centric. And how are you thinking about the family and how is the family brought into it? And how is your system set up so the families can have access, so the families can help, so families can care, so families have the information? Because you know what? We make it super hard for families to interact in healthcare. It's an incredibly frustrating experience for families because of this patient-centric view of the universe we have. And so the Copernican shift that needs to happen in healthcare is a shift to a family focus. And that, to me, is the the quotation marks, customer-centric view of the universe that you need to have there. You work with organizations that have taken that turn. What are some of the ways that they have actually started to accomplish that? Well, I'd say that with good intentions, what a lot of organizations have done is they've, they said, we need to get there. We don't know how to get there from here, but you know, we need to get there. And where often they'll start is they'll, they'll create a customer experience center. So they'll create a group of people who are listening to, learning from, and responding to customer comments and feedback. And done well, a CXC connects to multiple groups inside a company and acts as almost a centralized hub of customer information for all the groups, like, you know, the branding team and the research team and the engineering team and the PR team and the demand gen team, all that kind of stuff. And what will happen in an organization is they start to get used to like that team knows about customers. So then what that does is it plants a virus, and, and I mean a virus in the good sense here, <laughs> it plants a virus in the company that if there's enough volume and enough outreach, people start to like getting, get used to the fact that there's good ideas and customer feedback in this place. 
Many, many, many of our customers have these. And they're an awesome first step, like an awesome first step. There's a necessary second step. And we are seeing this happen in places like L'Oreal, a great example of it, where all the employees need to start engaging with customers. Because in a world where mass one-on-one is the reality, the sort of the, the hard fact of it is that the whole company has to be customer engaged in order to even try to match the scale. Because all these companies have millions of customers and only thousands of employees. And there's no way, you know, in kind of hell's half acre that you're ever going to get like 10 people in the social team interacting with, responding to, and connecting with millions of your customers. You've got to get the whole company engaged. So you're starting to see companies now sort of move that direction. Dignity Health is actually a great example of that as well, where they're, they're engaging multiple members of the team with advocacy efforts, with engagement efforts, where they you know, use tools across the whole organization, and they become a social enterprise. And that can glue the company together without reorganizing it. The third stage, which quite frankly, I have not yet seen, is, you know what? We got to organize around the customer. And what we need to do is organize our operating groups by customer type. I've not yet seen that. There are companies who have audience teams and audience team managers and leaders and stuff like that. But I've not seen a company organized around audience. But that'll happen. It'll happen. Uh, but that, but that's that, that's sort of down the road a little bit. But the CXC is still a lot of our customers are doing it, but not the majority, and it's certainly a minority of, co- of companies overall. The social enterprise, that's the one percenter group, and then you know the inevitability of it, it will be that in the, in a in a true social enterprise, what'll happen is it'll be like you know what this group of people really knows how to talk to CIOs. This group of people is really good at talking to CMOs. And this group of people really great at talking to CROs. And we start to organize our organization around those audience types. That would be in a classic B2B enterprise. In, in healthcare, same thing, right? This group of people really great at engaging with physicians. This group really great at engaging with uh, patients and their family members. This group of people really great at engaging with uh, practitioners and, and GPs and stuff like that. So you'll, you'll, and then we organize around that. So that'll, that'll sort of, I think, inevitably happen. Uh, and then you essentially extend the social enterprise and then divide it into audience types. But we're probably 20 years away from that. Like, I hope to see it. Yeah. I'm trying to eat really and exercise so that I live long enough to see someone do it. <laughs> I mean, it is an evolutionary process, right? This isn't, can't, you can't turn this around overnight, particularly with larger organizations. And trust me, hospitals and health systems, they're large BMS and they, they don't change that rapidly, you know, even though we want them to. So it will take a while to do that. But I'm wondering, and I'd love your perspective on this. Earlier, we talked about COVID-19 as being sort of a black swan event. Like, do you think that that there, we've seen in other parts of the healthcare delivery n- network that there's been some rapid transformations, so some rapid moves towards, uh, you know, adopting uh, various different types of technologies, strategies, processes, etc. Will it actually move our organizations to be more consumer centric, to be more experience centric? I've actually posted a number of. Um articles to my blog over the last uh, few weeks about this, like what's the future look like and how do we kind of come out of this and what's the, what changes? There will be changes. My fear is that I've worked in healthcare for a long time. I love healthcare. It's super entrenched in sort of traditional ways of operating. 
And so I, I think where the change may occur is it may occur at the communication level, which is how do we do a better job of preventing miscommunication and misinformation from flooding the systems? There's a there's like terrible issues right now where people are trying to call 911 lines and 311 lines and all that kind of stuff, and they can't get through, or they get they, after waiting for many hours, they get cut off, or they get, you know, that's not helpful, right? So those traditional channels are clearly broken down. So I, th- I do think there's going to be a move to modern channels for communication. In terms of the actual healthcare delivery, I don't know. You know, we'll, we'll see, but I, I do think that this has highlighted deficiencies in the system. But unfortunately, the deficiencies in the system are being driven by a set of economic realities that are very difficult to get around. And unless the economic realities change, which is very transformational and very controversial and very difficult, it's going to be hard to make it happen. My, my favorite book on healthcare, which I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast has read, but if you haven't, you have to read it, is, um, is the, you know, the Innovator's Dilemma. It's kind of this classic book by Clay Christensen. Uh, so the Innovator's Prescription, uh, which was written um, sort of in the early 2000s, the Innovator's Prescription by Clay Christensen, who was, who was a Harvard Business School professor, um, talked a lot about what would it take to transform the healthcare system. And a lot of it is focused on technology and our ability to more deeply understand the genome and our more deeply understand you know, disease types. Because, you know, it's clear that a disease even like pneumonia has got many of our variations. And transformation in the funding model, because the funding model is based on a 1950s conception of health and wellness, and the technology model is leaping ahead of it, and it's not being caught up. So as long as that problem exists, it's going to be very difficult to transform. And I think it will require tremendous leadership at a national level to be able to make that happen. I mean, kind of like tip of the hat to whoever wants to take that on. <laughs> but it would be amazing to see that get fixed. And is this the event that causes the momentum to change? Could be. The New Deal and a lot of the social structures that we have today as a society were driven by the Great Depression, but they, they didn't occur until late in the Great Depression. The level of chaos will determine the level of change. And I, I'm, I'm torn because I would love the change to occur because it's so obviously necessary. But the last thing I want is the chaos that drives it. And unfortunately, it's human systems are driven by chaos events. You know, the great changes we tend to make are driven in times of war, in times of you know, terrible tribulations. And I, I just, that's the thing I least prefer about humanity, but it is a reality. My vote would be less chaos less change. But, you know, we'll see what happens. (laughs) Well, with that, I really appreciate your time, though, today. People that are listening and they may want to know a little bit more about you online, what's a good way for them to find you? Grad, G-R-A-D, like graduate, and con, C-O-N-N, like Connecticut. And um, now there is, I will say, there is a a gradcon.com, which is a Chinese connector company um, that they're based at this Foxconn. It's like they kind of GradCon, Foxconn. I guess they kind of saw that analogy, but that's not my side gig or anything. Like that's that's not me. But everywhere else I'm GradCon. So on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, 
Feel free to connect with me on any of those platforms. I will accept your request. You can reach me at Sprinkler. It's grad.com at sprinkler.com. Feel free to send me a message. I look at them all the time. And I do have a blog, copernicanshift.com. We'll definitely link to all of those things in the show notes. Grad, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Chris. Talk to you later. All right, special thanks to Greg Kahn for coming on and sharing a little bit. Sprinkler, of course, uh, well-known in the industry and appreciate his time and energy and effort and willingness to, to come on. A couple of quick thoughts about conferences. We still you know, are somewhat in a sense of flux a little bit, but do uh, HMPS, HCIC. Be sure to sign up, support, check out their websites, make sure you know what's going on. Some of our other sponsors like Binary Fountain still doing lots of uh, webinars and things like that that you can certainly check out. Most importantly, if you'll sign up for the TPS report over at touchpoint.health, You'll get notified about all these types of things each and every Monday so you can keep up with what's going on and have links and all that kind of fun stuff. Let's do a couple of recommendations. What um, what do you have today? Reed, I'm going to recommend a show that I actually saw over the last weekend. And it may be when we're recording this podcast, when it comes out, it may be a little late to the game. But my wife and I, we were able to watch the musical Hamilton on Disney+. Yeah. Plus. Yeah. If you haven't seen it, and I know many of you may not be fans of musicals. I'm telling you, it was a really great performance and a really great show. I already knew the soundtrack from before, but actually watching it live performed, it was just very powerful. The music's really great. I just strongly recommend it for anybody who musical fans or not. Take a few minutes of your time. Well, it's got a little bit of adult language in it. So just keep that in mind. That's what I'm going to recommend. Hamilton. Nice. On Disney+. Plus. I like it. Well, kind of along those lines, of course, you know where to watch it. I downloaded an app that's pretty cool called Likewise, L-I-K-E-W-I-S-E, Likewise. It recommends stuff for you. It does not matter the streaming platform or where you find it, uh, those types of things. You can get recommendations for a restaurant, for a TV show, for a podcast, for a book, etc. It's really pretty interesting. You download. When you first go in, you pick like TVs and movies. You check a whole bunch of things that you've seen and like. And so that's how it starts curating stuff for you. And then when you click into those, it tells you where you can watch it. And it'll take you to that, whether it's Netflix or YouTube or Disney+. Plus. It's a pretty neat app. And so if you find yourself, especially during this time, thinking like, you know, what do I watch next or a good recommendation or something like that, it's a pretty cool app. It's a neat uh, user interface and it's called Likewise. Great. I'm going to download that. I probably has some AI behind that too, right? Yeah. Driving it. So that's kind of cool. Well, very cool. Thanks for uh, tuning in. Thanks for telling a friend. Thanks for supporting us 180 times, <laughs> assuming you've been here for all of them. But we certainly appreciate everything that you do for us and for the network. Uh, we couldn't do this without you. If you'd like to hear us talk to somebody specific, cover a certain topic, uh, just let us know. You can reach out on social media. Certainly, you can reach out through the website as well, touchpoint.health. Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.